from the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, uh, starting at verse 17. And Isaiah speaks with the voice of the Lord at this point in his uh, prophecy. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the, day of a, as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, nor will their bed, they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The second reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, starting at verse 14 and through to verse 25. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, We wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. There is what you might call an unfortunate downside to the Christian life that's rarely mentioned. That's right, an unfortunate downside to the Christian life that's rarely mentioned. It's this. The Christian life consists of a lot of waiting. 
Yes, waiting. And not only that, but waiting somewhat uncomfortably. That's the unfortunate downside of the Christian life that's really mentioned, uncomfortable waiting. It's true. Uh, take one of the earliest, if not the earliest, accounts we have of what a positive response to the gospel of the resurrected Jesus looked like. Writing to the people of a northern Greek city of Thessalonica in the early 50s of the first century, Paul says this, there's 1 Thessalonians 1, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They turned to serve to wait. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. If half the Christian life is serving, the other half is waiting. And waiting can be dull and dreary. But I want to take to a passage about waiting that is far from dull and dreary. It's a portion of scripture that I found quite exciting and bewildering the moment I first discovered it. Do you remember discovering things in the Bible for the very first time? I do. In fact, I still have that attitude, so it's a great privilege to, open, to share it with you. It's Romans chapter 8, particularly verses 18 through 25, which we're looking at in the last of our series, Resurrection Hope. Not the last time we'll hear of the resurrection here. It's central to the Christian faith. It pervades the whole New Testament. And really, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in our series, and if you've not got them all, not heard them all, I recommend going back and using the QR and going through them because I think, as, as um, we said, there is something about the whole full picture which is often very rich and often neglected by Christians. But we learnt in the first one that not only is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth true, but two, it means he's been made Lord of all. And then we looked at the resurrection of Jesus and other people, humankind as well. We learnt there, number three, that with Christ, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are made alive. We learnt fourthly, that those who are, as it were, raised with Christ can put to death the things on earth in their body. That is, live lives of Christian virtue now through the resurrection. Then last week, we learnt that, that number five, that those, that Christ is the first fruits of a great harvest of the resurrection and transformation all in Christ. Tonight, the sixth sermon, we learn that the resurrection of Jesus includes not just humankind, but includes the renewal of creation as well. Not just humankind, but the renewal of creation as well. This whole year's theme here at the parish of Churchill Anglican has been hope, living hope, and one of the greatest hopes of all is the renewal of all creation. Now, tonight's take-home will be this. That is, if you hear nothing else in this sermon, will be this. Not only are believers waiting, the entire universe is waiting with them. Not only are believers waiting, the entire universe is waiting with them. And that should make waiting easier and less dull and dreary. Come with me to Romans 8, page 916 of the Church Bible. And it may be useful to have it open if you can. And let me start with a sentence which I think starts this all off, which is in fact verse 17, just outside my allotted text. 
Paul says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share with his glory. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order we may share in his glory. Paul is discussing here one of the greatest privileges a human can ever have. The privilege of having God, the living God, as father, dear father. The privilege of being a child, a son or daughter of God. And that's a privilege brought about, Paul writes, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So he says in verses 14 through 16, the ones just before what I just read, I quote, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit that you receive does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. I know that's a non-inclusive phrase there. It, it, the translators have kept it there because in the ancient world, sonship was a particularly, they made differentiation between the, the sexes and sonship had a particular social significance that we're keeping, but it's, it's, it, it means child, child of God. And by him we cry, that's by the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the Holy Spirit both brings about, Paul writes, your adoption as God's child, God's son. And by calling out to God as father, dear father, by recognizing God as father, the Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit that you are God's child because you recognize your father. Now, here's the important thing. In the Roman world in which Paul lived, and don't forget, Paul was a Roman as well as a Jew. Adoption wasn't what it's like for us today. We, have, we adopt a child, a new child, small children and, and infants, because we want to give a child a new parents or parents want a new child. In Roman society, adoption was not about gaining a new child, but ensuring the continuation of your family line and, and securing an heir. It's all about inheritance and family line. It could involve small children, but more than often than not, adoption in the Roman culture involved young adult males to continue the family line of the heirs. For example, Julius Caesar adopted the young man Octavian on a rather significant day, the 15th of March, 44 BC. He adopted Octavian, who I think was a vague distant relative anyway, as his legal son and heir and successor which Octavian achieved later that very day, for it was the very day in which Julius Caesar was assassinated. <laughs> and Octavian took the name, by the way, Julius Caesar, and became his successor, eventually the great, great, you could call that, um, emperor, um, Augustus. And that's, Augustus got his son, Tiberius, the same way, by adopting someone else. So adoption is all about inheritance in, in, in this language, and Paul's using that language Adoption about inheritance. That's why he says in verse 17, if we're children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Heirs of God, that is, we inherit from God, which is amazing enough. Co-heirs with Christ, we inherit with Christ, the great son of God. Now that, it's, I mean, that is quite a, that, that would be the whole sermon if you wanted to. That's such an incredible thought. 
Amazing. You might hear it from God with Christ, that glory. It is the substance of the Christian hope. The thing, however, is, says Paul, sharing with Christ's glory is conditional upon sharing Christ's hardship and suffering. Let me give you the whole of verse 17 again. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, if indeed we share his, in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order to share in his glory. Now, what counts as sharing in Christ's sufferings will vary immensely depending upon your circumstance and life situation. I mean, it can go from just mild inconvenience, um, being faithful to Christ in a somewhat sneering majority secular world on one hand, to, because of your faithfulness to Christ, suffering violence, persecution and death threats. Just talk to Christians in Nigeria today. The point is, now, with Christ's suffering, then with Christ's glory. But the with Christ's suffering is now and the with Christ's glory is to come. That's the problem. No waiting for the suffering, only waiting for the glory. And the question is, is it worth it? Is the suffering with Christ, and think of the extreme, not the modern convenience, think of the extreme for a moment. Is that worth it? Is it worth it? You better believe it. Listen to this, verse 18. I consider, says Paul, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let that sink in for a minute. Not just our present sufferings will be compensated for by the glory or not as bad as they seemed at the time compared to the glory, but not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Paul talks about this glory in a way that's quite striking. How he shows that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that revealed, that revealed in us is the thing that so excited and bewildered me when I first read it so long ago. Let me read the whole section 18 through 21, then I'll come back and unpack it. I consider, he says, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not of its own choice, but the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Verse 19, I think, is the key. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we revealed because even the creation is waiting in eager expectation for its glory with us. For the children of God to be revealed, the whole creation is waiting in eager expectation, he says. Now, I think one of the reasons when I first read that sentence 55 years ago or so, um, I read it in the J.B. Phillips paraphrase of the New Testament, which I received as a Sunday school prize. 
J.B. Phillips paraphrases, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed like this. In fact, I've put it in the handout. You can see it there in the handout in your hands. Quote, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. It's quite striking, isn't it? The whole creation on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Um, it's a paraphrase, it's not a literal translation, but it's quite striking. But what struck me was not just the vivid language, it was what it was saying. That the future of the whole of creation is somehow bound up with the believer's future. When the children of God are revealed, it in some way will share with the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory with which our present sufferings are not worth comparing. That is... It is waiting. It is waiting for us. It is waiting with us. It is waiting for us and with us. A Christian believer waiting for the promise of inheriting with Christ may feel somewhat out of step with a wider unbelieving world. Fear they may be on the wrong side of history. But in truth, the whole universe is on the side of the believer waiting with them for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That is, I think, an astounding truth. It blew my mind then, it, it does even today. Now you might say, why does creation have to wait with us? The answer is very unexpected. It's because God has deliberately made his creation limited. God has deliberately made his creation limited. That's what verse 20 says. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Deliberately, the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own will, but the one who subjected it. And in the next sentence, Paul talks about creation being liberated from its present state of bondage to decay. This is not saying that God's creation is bad. The it was good of Genesis 1 still stands. But it's a good creation which by the will of God, in which by the will of God, delay, decay and frustration at present have the last word. It's a good creation in which by the will of God, frustration and decay at present have the last word. A good creation subjected to frustration, a good creation in bondage to decay. And if that were so, we would expect to experience God's creation in an ambivalent way, as having beauty and ugliness, joy and pain, where you would find good, but where you'd also find evil, where having order and chaos, having harmony and violence. And that's exactly what we do find. On one hand, we see much that is beautiful and wonderful about creation. I'm a bit of a nerd, the other day I was reading a book entitled Just Six Numbers by Martin Rees, the astronomer royal. 
Rees writes about the six significant numbers that seem entirely arbitrary, but are so fine-tuned they make it possible for there to be a universe in which there is intelligent life. Take, for example, the force of gravity. Gravity is 10 to the power 36. That's 10 with 36 noughts after it. It's 10 to the 36 times weaker than the electromagnetic force, the force between positive and negative electric charges. It turns out that if that ratio was only the slightest bit difference, 10 to 36, don't forget, the slightest bit difference, either more or less, then either atoms would not have been able to form in the first place, or large bodies like stars and galaxies could not have existed, which means no inhabitable universe. So finely tuned. And there are many other examples of such things. I read that even the very vastness of the universe, the tens of billions of light years, there it is, which at first seems to signify how unimportant we are in the cosmic scheme, is what has to be for us to exist. Yes, there is so much that is beautiful and wonderful about creation. Given that, you might want to sing the words of Mrs. Cecil Alexander's 1848 children's hymn, which I'm not going to sing. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. But not so fast. There is another side to this. We don't always experience creation as all things bright and beautiful. Terrible things happen. Things happen for no reason. There is violence. There is death. For example, we know, we now know that in the long history of life on Earth, there have been five catastrophic mass extinction events. Five. The last one, the creatus paleogene extinction occurred 66 million years ago and led to the mass extinction of three quarters of animal and plant life on Earth, including famously the dinosaurs. Although there was upside to that, it gave us mammals a chance to sneak in <laughs> and flourish. That wasn't the greatest loss. The Permian-Triassic extinction event, known as the Great Dying, which occurred 252 million years ago, is estimated to have caused the extinction of approximately 96% of all marine species and 70% of all terrestrial vertebrate species. In fact, today, over 99% of species that ever lived are extinct. That's not very all things bright and beautiful, is it? So maybe the creation is more suited to some lines from In Memoriam by Alfred Lord Tennyson, one of the most popular poets in Victorian England. Tennyson, in his long poem, which was a favourite of Queen Victoria's as she dealt with the long grief of her own beloved, Tennyson wrestled, amongst other things in this long poem, with the cruelty of nature, with the cruelty of nature. He writes of the dashed hopes of man, quote, who trusted God was love indeed and love creation's final law, though nature read in tooth and claw with ravines shrieked against his creed. Nature is not, Tennyson noticed, as man had hoped, a place of love. 
It's red in tooth and claw. It's violent and destructive. So which is it to be? In memoriam or all things bright and beautiful? Both. They both tell a truth. God's creation is a good creation in which you will find beauty and wonder. But it's also a creation subject to frustration and in bondage to decay. I've been using large pictures of this, but it's also true in your own life from day to day. You'll have that same experience, glorious days, and then, then in, that, in the midst of that frustration and deep sadness. That's what God did deliberately, says Paul. God made it that way. You may say, why? Why did he make it that way? Let me read the answer in verse 20 to 21. For creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Why did God make it that way? He made it that way in hope, in hope of liberation, that it might share its liberation with the liberation of the children of God. By the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It will be set free when we are set free. When creation is brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God, it shares our hope. Now, last Sunday, we saw how Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of those who sleep. That is, the first of the great harvest of the resurrection of the dead. I think what Paul is saying here is something that the same is true of the universe itself. Christ's resurrection, especially when you think about it, his physical body resurrected, is the beginning of a new creation, if I, if I put it like that. Better still, let me let the great John Polkinghorne, an English theoretical physicist, theologian and, and Anglican priest, say it much better. I quote, the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning within history of a process whose fulfillment lies beyond history, in which the destiny of humanity and the destiny of the universe are together to find their fulfilment in a liberation from decay and futility. The destiny of humanity and the destiny of the universe together to find their fulfilment in a liberation from decay and futility. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of, says Polkinghorne. Here also what retired professor of Christian ethics and practical theology at the University of Edinburgh, Oliver O'Donovan said, in proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, the apostles proclaimed also the resurrection of mankind. And in proclaiming the resurrection of mankind, they proclaimed the renewal of all creation with him. The renewal of all creation with him. There you have it. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You may remember that I said I found this both exciting and bewildering. 
It is bewildering to me, it was then, it still is, as I can't imagine how this is going to happen or what it will be like. Then again, I have enough trouble trying to imagine what the present creation is like, let alone a renewal of all creation in Christ. For me, it's one of those I cannot tell, but this I know moments. What I do know is, all this is meant to make our waiting easier. That's the whole point of the next paragraph, Romans 8, 22-25, not that Paul actually wrote in paragraphs. What makes our waiting easier, he says, is the knowledge that we and the creation are both in this together. We're groaning together. Let me read verse 22 to 23. Quote, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in, as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The whole creation is groaning, for its liberation from its bondage to decay, subject to frustration, we are groaning. How so? Because, Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's why we're groaning. There's that word again, first fruits. Last Sunday, it was Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of the big resurrection. Here is the Spirit, which is the first fruits of what Paul calls our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Although we are adopted, to sonship by the Spirit already in one way, as he says in verse 13, the, through the Spirit, you, the Spirit you received brought about your adopted sonship, yet another way, we're still waiting for it. We groan eagerly, groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That is the full clothing of the perishable with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Because the Holy Spirit is the first fruits, that is the down payment now guaranteeing the future, it creates in the believer an imbalance, a tension. We've already experienced something of what it is to be a full child of God now. We can call God our Father, dear Father. But we are frustrated because it's incomplete. Our bodies are still flesh and blood, which cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They are still perishable and mortal. And some days, you know, you feel that more than others, right? You know that more than others. You might say that a believer with the first fruits of the Spirit is suffering a form of body dystopia. Their body doesn't fit who they are. So they groan inwardly, groaning for the glory that will be revealed in us with our present sufferings are not worth comparing. And the creation groans as well groaning in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I said at the beginning that the Christian life does consist of a lot of waiting, even uncomfortable waiting, and that's true. Waiting somewhat uncomfortably, groaning for the, inwardly for the redemption of our bodies. It is a life of waiting. It is a life of hope. As Paul writes in verse 24 of the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. In the hope of, of the resurrection we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what they really have? So what's to be done? Here's the application in a sentence, verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. If we hope what we do not yet have, 
we wait for it patiently. So there you are. Be patient. You have the entire universe on your side. And that was to be the end of my sermon, actually. But having heard the death of the late Timothy Keller, some of you may know, a Christian uh, pastor and scholar, I think of, I'll get this right now, I think of equal standards, something like John Stott of, of, of America, in, my, in terms of his ability, a normal Christian pastor whose reach and depth, if you ever see his books, they're worth reading. In the light of that, I thought I might get, let the last word of this series, the last word of this sermon, and the last word of this six-part series on the resurrection be not mine, but let's give it to Timothy Keller, who said this recently in a New York Times interview. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything right. Suffering is going to go away. Evil is going to go away. Death is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Pancreatic cancer is going to go away. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then I guess all bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope in the world.